0: Welcome Ingrid. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Such a pleasure to have you. Tell us a little about a bit about your motivation in writing this book with Gene Stone.
1: Well, um, people may know Gene from Forks Over Knives. He, he helped, uh, he wrote that or helped write that. And also Michael Grego's book, How Not to Die. And Michael has a new one out uh, about the pandemic. So uh, he should be familiar, if not in name, by those things. Um, He cares about animals, and I thought he would be a good co-author because we're both very busy people. And um, so we teamed up, and I have tons of facts about animals. I collect newspaper clippings and things from the Internet, and I have done ever since Peter started 40 years ago. And so I thought, well, I've got all this information that's really pretty jaw-dropping. Or inspiring things, really, about all manner of animals, from mice to elephants, dogs and cats and possums, and even snails, lovely stories about snails. And so I thought I'll put them all together and we can write a book. Um, because people's interest in animals, I think, is at an all-time high. People have been watching the videos on the internet of Uh, Everything with wildlife coming out during the pandemic, bears with their cubs in the national parks, and deer walking down city streets that are deserted. And they're looking at funny things, too, and poignant things. There was one Internet video I saw of a mother raccoon whose little infant baby has fallen over a concrete roadway barrier and is on the highway side, and she's on the other side, and she is stretching as far as she can with her arms all the way down, her body over this barrier, trying to pick up her baby, and holding onto her legs so she doesn't fall is what is clearly her yearling child who was born the year before, her half-grown child, (laughs) and they're all working to save this baby. So I thought, you know, people circulate these wonderful videos and say, oh, look at this and look what this animal is doing. And I thought, this is the time to say yes. And you don't know the half of it. You don't know how intelligent they are and how wonderfully loving and emotional they are. So I'll write animal kind and uh, it will really open some eyes and very, it will be pleasing to people who maybe even just care about the dog or the hamster at home.
0: There's just some fascinating facts in your book. I know I particularly liked um, when you talk and discuss the size, the brain size of humans and compare it to other animals. Uh, I think many people (laughs) would be surprised to hear that. We come in fourth after sperm whales, (laughs) elephants, and dolphins. And then when you look at the ratio between body size and brain, we fall behind ants, shrews, small birds, and mice.
1: Yeah, it's phenomenal because, you know, we've always said, oh, we are like gods. We're these big brained creatures and actually fiddlesticks. Um, I I also wish I had the gardening ability of ants. I'm not very good with plants. They usually die if I have them under my care. I never know how much water to give them or not or whether (laughs) to put them in the sun or not. Ants have... Um, gardens that go for acres and acres underground They're fungus gardens and they can feed a colony of over a million ants and they weed that garden to keep bacteria out and they trim the fungus and they're just phenomenal I mean they didn't go to school to learn hortic- horticulture <laughs> so yeah intelligences come in all forms and I do remember once um, Jane Goodall was with me on Capitol Hill and there was Michael Jackson's chimpanzee Bubbles I don't know if anyone remembers Bubbles that poor chimpanzee Oh he yes he was in Michael Jackson's yeah he was in his menagerie he used to drag him around dressed in clothes and here he was on Capitol Hill and they had him at a table and he was uh, he had a plate and a knife and a fork and a cup and um two congressional aides, these well-dressed, well-paid guys, were really mocking him because he could drink from the cup okay, but he had a hard time with a knife and fork cutting things up. And they were mocking him for not being as clever as a human being. And Jane Goodall said to them, if I took you right now and I set you down in the jungle where this chimpanzee comes from, has been taken away from, how do you think you do who do you think would be the smarter and would fare that who do you think would know what to eat what to drink how to shelter themselves what to avoid you know all those things you wouldn't do so well so don't think in terms of what i say is don't think in terms of ranked think in terms of linked is that we're all in this together in the great orchestra of life And some animals are so smart, they could knock our socks off in a whole range of ways. They may not have made a nuclear bomb. They may not have polluted all the riverways with chemical combinations. They may not have done a lot of things, but even a little dog in your house can probably sniff out a cancer or know when someone is going to have an epileptic fit before anybody else does.
0: Yeah, I just recently heard that dogs are being used to sniff out cancer, which I thought was fascinating. I know they have amazing smelling abilities.
1: Oh, absolutely amazing. I mean, their noses, and I say this, you know, I see people dragging their dogs along on a walk. Luckily people have slowed down a bit now because of the pandemic, they have more time to be outside and knocking about. But normal course of events, it drives me insane to see people just dragging their dogs hastily down the street because their lives are so important and their dog's excursion is not. They've brought their dogs out to do their business and then they'll rush them back in the house and then they'll go off and live a life. And nowadays, you know, people saying, oh, I went stir crazy, I'm stuck in my house (laughs) two weeks or three weeks, four weeks, I don't know what to do. They've got Netflix, they've got books, they've got phones, they've got computers, they can look out the window. The dog sits there year after year, day after day in many households, staring at the wall, hoping somebody will come home just so they can relieve themselves. So I always say, you know, they're smelling everything. It drives them mad when you're making dinner and they can't go in the kitchen and join in, or they can't open the refrigerator, although some of them do, as you'll see on the internet in those videos, when you're not looking. (laughs) But when you have them out on a walk, the bushes are their internet. They are able to smell who went by, when they went by, what kind of physical condition they were in. They know the biochemical changes, in a body, a dog's body, a human's body. They can know if someone was in heat or somebody was pregnant or someone was ill. And that's why they love sticking their heads out of the car window. They're just bombarded with news of all sorts of things going on. So I say, you know, there's one thing that we can do is respect them for their abilities that we don't have and be sensitive to them. They're used to sniff out explosives, to find food and luggage from flights coming in. They're used now to find um, cancers, as you say, to uh, diagnose things that on an equal par with doctors in, in tests. But they have to be given a life, a real life, to be able to dig and bark sometimes and be praised for warning you that they can smell someone coming or they can smell the park that's ahead of your car before you can, and they're just letting you know. Don't tell them, be quiet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was really impressed by some of the stories you told in your book about dogs and cats that returned home from many, many, many miles away when they ended up many miles away it was amazing
1: yeah there are so many stories of that and nobody knows quite how but i do think it's linked in part to smell because dogs can pick up the way a shark could pick up a drop of blood in an ocean a dog can pick up the slightest scent that's coming from miles away and so yes animals who have been taken away from their home maybe everybody's loaded into the camper and they've gone off to a national park a 1,000 miles away in a state, a different state, and they've never been that way before, if they get lost and the family leaves, many, many dogs and cats and other animals can find their way home. Even if they lose weight, they can't find things to eat, they're at the mercy of traffic. There was one the other day, and a cat arrived home after I think it was a 3,000-mile trip and had had to go through swamps, through alligator-infested territory, and arrived home, crawled up the front step, but was home. So, yes, they also, of course, as you know, they can align themselves with the Earth's magnetic field. I think we've all heard now That when dogs relieve themselves, they turn in circles, turn in circles. They're looking for the north-south axis. And it's the same with cows. Cows will actually graze on a north-south axis. But, yeah, they have amazing abilities.
0: There's so much we have to learn from them. It's just fascinating. I mean, we couldn't. I mean, we need a GPS, and they do it naturally.
1: Right, (laughs) That's right. I think one of my favorite animals is the pigeon, and pigeons are very much derided. People call them rats, uh, rats with wings. I call rats um, pigeons without wings, but (laughs) it's just, you know, people complain. Well, they're dirty. They're not dirty. Human beings didn't have sewers. They had to construct them. Um, You know, you can just clean up after a pigeon. They didn't ask to to come here. They were imported. They used to live on cliffs. They're actually rock doves, the symbol of peace. Anyway, they're fabulous animals. And they can navigate by the uh, low-frequency radio wave. And if you think about it, human beings didn't even know there were radio waves until the time of Marconi. It was a revelation. Good Lord, radio waves. Pigeons have always known. And what pigeon racers do, which is really very, very sad, is just so that they can win some prize money, they take pigeons who are extremely loyal parents and life mates. They take them away from their loft, and they take them sometimes across huge bodies of water like uh, the lakes, the Great Lakes, or even they take them from uh, England into Spain or from Spain to Tenerife, across the oceans, and they race them, they let them go. And the reason that those pigeons fly home is because they know their mate, their life partner or their baby is back home at the loft and they will risk their lives through wind and storms crossing these great bodies of water they're afraid of because if a wave comes up and they hit the water they're goners. and they will do that because they're so wonderful they want to get home but they'll navigate as best they can by the position of the stars by the earth's magnetic field and by low frequency radio waves bless their hearts
0: the uh, sea turtle is also an interesting animal. It, it returns to the same place to lay its eggs every year. And they're like thousands of miles away in the water. It's fascinating.
1: Yeah, they, turtles are fascinating in so many ways. And of course, they were pretty much decimated for turtle soup and pe- because people wanted to have tur- tortoiseshell glasses and... Artifacts and people would actually take the shells as decorations and put them on their shelf. All those things happen, and people, of course, eat turtle in in many places. So there are conservation efforts, but it does it is heartbreaking when you think the ordeal that some animals, like turtles, have to go through um, to traverse uh, many, many hundreds or even thousands of miles to come to the spot where they know they should be laying their eggs or spawning. Um, I mean, salmon are, are phenomenal. I sometimes think I must be a salmon because I really think maybe I should go home to England and retire there one day. <laughs> but yet yeah, they, they are phenomenal. I, I, again, to go back to birds, if I may, in Croatia, there are two storks I mean, there are many storks, but this particular pair of storks who there's a a teacher who has made a nest for them on top of his house. Every winter, the the male stork flies 5,000 miles to South Africa and winters over in South Africa. The reason the female doesn't go is because she was shot by a hunter and her wing is damaged. And the teacher has nursed her back to health he winters her over inside his house. And then come spring, he pops her back up in the nest that they've they've constructed together. And every spring from 5,000 miles away, that male stork arrives to the same house, the same nest, the same small Croatian town on exactly the same day. And the whole town comes out to wait for him and watch for him and here he comes. And one year, he was six days late, and the whole town was all upset, not knowing what had happened to him. And when he finally arrived, of course, it was a great celebration that he had made it. Who knew what he had been through? And every year together, they're reunited, and they raise a clutch of baby storks together, and he teaches them to fly. That's quite a story.
0: (laughs) But it's reality, it's not a story, excuse me, I used the wrong word. It's what they do,
1: it's their nature. Yeah, they're they're wonderful partners. I always think that we could learn a lot about fidelity and uh, loyalty from birds, birds particularly, but all manner of animals. You know, if if a goose is shot, uh, the life partner of a goose will often come down to earth and sit beside the injured goose even if they're risking their lives. And you see, I mean, pigeons again, the the male and the female, both make milk in their crops to feed their babies. They take turns babysitting. And they are very sensuous. They kiss. You have elephants, of course, who are bonded for life, birds bonded for life, geese, swans bonded for life, um, they're all, they could teach us a lot when we have a, I think, 45%, maybe higher, divorce rate among human beings these days.
0: <laughs> it's probably going to go up after the quarantine, too, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, if they don't kill their partner first. Right.
0: I was surprised to
2: read in your book, Ingrid, that we have only discovered less than 15% of the species on the planet.
1: Yes, and we're busy wiping them out as soon as we find them, basically. I mean, I don't know what business we have wanting to catalog all the animals and look into their brains and dissect them and give them a name, a label, and, and so on. I mean, the first thing that is done if a new species is found is some human beings capture them. And they have no idea if they have family lives or relationships or what they're busy doing down there in the ocean's depths or in a deep jungle. And we've yet to learn. This species has yet to learn respect. It is none of your business. Leave them alone. And, you know, that's what we should be doing, not not poking and prodding and interfering as if we are everything and they are inconsequential. But yeah we're lo- lo- losing a lot of species. Then there are reintroductions that are going on, and I'm not in favor of most of those, where we decide, ah, oh, well, we've messed this up. well, let's reintroduce the species here. And what we see is that often that species comes to a bad end because we like to manage everything. We are the big micromanagers of the universe. and so when the introduced species, uh, gets to be rather large, then we decide we're going to go in and have hunting seasons and uh, um, numbers that we can so-called cull, which means kill, and manage them. And animals don't need to be managed. They need to be left alone. And I mean, even buffalo, bison, then they wander if they, they reintroduce them. Then a few of them wander out of the park, and then they give brucellosis to cattle that get sick, and the farmers want to kill those cattle so that they can eat them and sell them for food, and so that interferes with their business. They should leave the cattle alone and the bison alone.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, or- and we have this with coyotes. We were very close to passing a, a law when everything fell apart regarding you know, eliminating these uh, coyote contests, which are just horrific, and it's all for the yes. farmers. You know, they, they just don't, they won't tolerate anything that can possibly harm one of their animals. And it's, you know, there's no coexistence. It's just
1: intolerance. Well, also, it's beyond that, isn't it? Because the farmers have decided that they want to kill the sheep. And they don't want coyotes killing any number of them because they're going to kill the whole bunch of them. Um, first they're going to breed them, they're going to take away the lambs, or they're going to take away the sheep and have those lambs have lambs. And so they are going to create this resource for them to get the wool from, get the mutton from, get the lamb chops from. And it's all ghastly for those sheep. Sheep are the dearest, gentlest, most lovely family animals. I've been out to Australia. Uh, Australian 60 Minutes brought me out there to look at a thing called mulesing, which they don't do in Oregon. They don't do in the U.S., thank God. But it's where they cut their flesh off the rumps of little lambs because they've got a special kind of lamb or sheep there, the merino. But anyway, when I was out there, they showed me around the farm, and there were all these signs up, and it said, Caution poison 1080 in use here, poison 1080, compound 1080 is a gut-wrenching, miserably painful poison, and it was out for predators who might take a sheep here or a sheep there, and they said, well, yes, we have to do this because it's awful what they do to the sheep, and I thought, what do you do to the sheep, but not just one here and one there. Your whole business is based on harming these beautiful, wonderful, gentle family animals. And it's the same all over the globe. I I reject wool. I hope everybody rejects wool. If you've ever looked inside a shearing shed, and we have, we've been in shearing sheds on every continent except Antarctica, and that's only because there aren't any on Antarctica. We've seen horrific cruelty. Every bit as bad as how animals are killed for fur and how animals are treated for fur. No, a coyote is just taking what he needs, he's not taking for greed, and he will manage his own population if you leave him alone.
2: You know, I don't think people realize when they eat animals that they when they eat especially cows, how many animals are being killed, not just the cow. But as you mentioned, the coyotes, the wolves, other animals, and horses.
0: Horses are
2: being killed. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, Horses for sure. Yeah. um...
0: And the slaughter process, I know I read about it some time ago. I mean, not that any slaughter process is good, but with horses, it, it was extremely cruel.
1: Yeah, I mean, anybody who works in a slaughterhouse has got to be fairly inured to suffering. I mean, it's all around you. But I must say, you know, horses, in the book I talk, I, in the book we don't go into a lot of details the way we are doing today. In the book I mostly talk about the wonderful things that, that animals do. And one of the things with horses is in Norway, they've taught horses to tap a symbol if they want a, a coat put on them because it's cold, and then tap another symbol if they're too hot and they want the coat taken off. Although I can't understand in Norway how you'd ever be too hot to have the coat taken off. But they figure these things out. They communicate with their ears, with their faces. The way we find out cows have very subtle facial expressions that uh, other cows understand. You know, rhinos have breath language that other rhinos understand. All these wonderful things. It's only that human beings don't realize how fascinating animals are. are They're therefore oblivious or unfeeling about what we do to them. And we just need to get over ourselves, change our habits, and be good citizens of the whole of the world's species, not just our own. So true.
0: We should return back to the the body of the book, which has got so much good information on it. The first half is full of information about how animals navigate, communicate, love, and play. It was just such a pleasure to read through that and hear all of the fascinating stories. Uh, Are there any special ones that you'd like to share with our listeners, Ingrid?
1: (laughs) Well, that's a tall order because every one of them I find special. And I'm not just saying that the the trick was which ones to leave out. I I wanted to put a lot in about our fellow primates and how clever they are. And, you know, there are so many stories now about, and these are are recorded incidents. They're not made up stories of um, chimpanzees, baboons, rhesus monkeys hiding Little things like a piece of metal until the keeper in the zoo or at the laboratory has gone home. And then being recorded on camera, working and working and working at the lock with a piece of metal just to try to get it open. And sometimes succeeding and being able to go over the wall and get away. One of, well, I'll give you two of my favorites. One is that dolphins give their babies a whistle name when they're born, each each baby dolphin. Responds to a whistle. Uh, that's that's their name. They they respond to it for their whole lives. And if a dolphin doesn't see or hear of another particular dolphin for up to 20 years, then when they hear that whistle, they know exactly who that is. That's their name. They know who that is. But when when um, we first began talking today, I did mention snails, so I have to tell you a little something about snails. I didn't know until I started putting animal kinds together that snails, if they know that there's a storm coming, they use their slime to make a door to the, their shell and they seal up that door and then they make a double door behind it. And then they shelter behind that. So they've sort of got double glazing that they've been able to make out of their own slime so that they're safe from the storm and there's a story in the book about two snails. One was not very well and the other was in great health and someone put them into a garden and it wasn't a very good garden. It was just sort of dried up and awful. There wasn't anything to eat and the healthy snail, you could see his trail, went up the garden wall and over the other side where there was a fabulous garden, a really rich and lush, garden with lots of juicy things to eat but he didn't stay there he came back up the wall down the other side and got the other snail to follow him and back they went together this the sickly snail behind the healthy snail all the way into the other garden and i thought who knows how they communicate but clearly this snail went on a reconnaissance and thought i'm going to help my friend and came and got him so No one can say, oh, you're anthropomorphizing, because that's an old-fashioned word that means you just think humans feel and think, and now we know, no, all species feel and think, including little snails.
2: I think that is amazing, and you also talk about slime molds in your book, and I found that fascinating.
1: (laughs) I do talk about slime molds. I just, uh, I thought I'd throw that in because it's just rather odd, but slime molds have been found to be able to uh, go through mazes. And the reason I put that in there, and and this is the same with um, fungal bodies and so on, is that there must be uh, capabilities that we just don't know about. The same as we didn't know about radio waves, there are things we don't know about. There are lots of things in the book that you do know about, but slime molds, I thought I would chuck in there. It's funny because the slime molds at one end and then there are elephants at the other. And everybody loves elephants. I've got lots of stories about them too.
0: One of the things that is mentioned in the book is it talks about birds and how many are caged in the United States by people, 40 million, which is an incredible number. Yeah, I
1: mean, what is a cage? A cage is a see-through box. Do you take a living being and put them in a box? You know, you take a thing and put them in a box. But parrots particularly are heartbreaking because people think they're so exotic, they're so colorful, and so they want to have a parrot. And because parrots are expensive, they may perhaps be able to afford one and if you think about it birds are flocks animals. It's like us being family people or dogs being pa- in a pack. That's what is natural to them. And and in the wild in nature in their own homes they are in flocks of sometimes dozens, sometimes hundreds, sometimes a thousand other parrots flying through the jungle, going nesting, talking, feeding, you know raising their young. And here you've got one stuck in a see-through box the loneliness alone is just absolutely awful and what parrots do is parrots communicate because they're used to being out in these vast areas with big sky and, and acreage is when they talk they screech and so if they are lonely they'll screech if they want to have a friend they'll screech if they want to mate they'll screech, whatever they do, they'll screech. And often that irritates the human being who has encaged them. And that human being will yell at them or throw something at the cage. I've seen it a million times. Or they'll relegate that poor bird to a dark corner of the house or even shove them in the basement in their cage where they can't smell in anything, the fresh air, they can't have sunlight, they can't look out. They have nothing. And what many parrots do is they start to self mutilate and they start to pluck out their feathers because they're so stressed, they're so traumatized. They'll pull their feathers out from their body. And if you go to the few, and there aren't that many, all things considered parrot sanctuaries where parrots who are unwanted are dumped, you find many, many parrots are living on tranquilizers They're drugged up all day because they've gone mad and they are so upset. They bob their heads, bob their heads. Not in a normal way, but in a stereotypical way of trying to deal with mental anguish. So no one should ever have a parrot. No one should ever have a bird in a cage. Puts all heaven in a rage and all that. And birds, of course, need to fly. If you ever go to a hotel and they have caged birds, complain put it on TripAdvisor, make a fuss, squawk for the parrot.
0: I don't think either one of us have a problem doing that. Right, Judy? Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Good. Activism is everything.
2: Absolutely. I recently read in an article you and Jean Stone wrote, Ingrid, that People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals were picketing the facilities, the meat processing facilities that had closed due to coronavirus and with signs that said stay closed forever, meat kills. I thought that was fantastic.
1: (laughs) Thank you. We are outside um, and I will always say please call them slaughterhouses. You know they've got these euphemisms that they use now for themselves they call themselves meat packing plants and they call themselves pork production facilities. They're slaughterhouses. That's where they slaughter animals and cut them up into pieces. Yeah. We are outside a slaughterhouse every single day in the U S or Canada. We're outside live markets in New York city, which has 80 live markets. One's in San Francisco, Los Angeles. And, um, Protesting, We've got grim reapers out there with scythes that say slaughterhouses kill animals and workers, because of course so many workers now are suffering from COVID-19. Workers have died from COVID-19. And so they don't care about them either. They're dispensable migrant mostly workers and they do not take precautions to keep them healthy. And in fact, they even blame the workers by saying, oh, well, their living conditions at home. They're so crowded. Well, yeah, they're poor. (laughs) But yeah, we're outside all those places, and we've been outside the National Institutes of Health, which is the largest funder of animal experiments in the world, and where animals are being destroyed now because they say they don't have staff to go in and feed them or clean up after them. And the experiments they're in are not essential. So if they weren't, if they're not essential now, they weren't essential when they began and they should never start up again. And that's another of our campaigns during the pandemic to say, you know, how did you have these animals in the first place when you told people it was vital that you had to do these experiments and now you say, well, actually, no, we can kill them all. Uh, we can get rid of that experiment because it's inconvenient to come in. Right.
2: Uh, Reading about the slaughterhouses reminded me of a billboard by PETA years ago that said, feeding kids meat is child abuse. (laughs) But I think it was probably controversial because it didn't last very long, but I thought it was great.
1: Well, thank you. I've, everything we do seems to be controversial in a topsy-turvy world. <laughs> Apparently, it's, it, it isn't controversial to take an animal who's minding their own business and put them in a chain uh, in your backyard and just throw some food to them every day or put them in a cage in the circus and have them turn in circles. is isn't controversial to eat them or wear them, take the skin off their backs. But if we dare to say, excuse me, leave the animal alone, um, don't feed your children things that are going to give them heart attacks, diabetes, cancer, high blood pressure, You know, if you're addicted to meat, at least don't do the same thing to your child, because if you've looked at it for five minutes, you know that you're setting your child on the road to physical disaster. So, yes, and just recently, we have this dancing tofu costume, and we have somebody in a dancing tofu costume outside supermarkets giving away uh, packets of tofu, tofu recipes, and uh, tips on how to cook it and so on. And we have a billboard that says, tofu never caused a pandemic. And it's just a smiling, <laughs> smiling little tofu face. And someone has written, I think on Fox News, that it's offensive. How, how is that offensive?
2: <laughs> hey, we could do that here, you you could be the dancing tofu and I'll hand out the recipes. <laughs> yeah, there
1: we go. Yay! <laughs> Fabulous. And you know we have an extension arm that we hand things out on because we've also been handing out toilet paper that says wipe cruelty from your diet. Go vegan. <laughs> and we use <laughs> really? we use yeah, and we use we actually send a roll to every member of Congress. And we, uh, use an extension arm, one of those long things with the pinches on the, on the thing, so that we are always physically distancing. The biggest thing, though, is personal responsibility. Is the reason slaughterhouses exist, is obviously because people buy the product, the meat, from them. And if people buy milk, they should remember, there's no giant retirement home for all these so-called dairy cows. We not only take their babies away from them so we can take the milk, but when they're really worn down and totally grief-stricken, and they've only been around for three or four years, we kick and prod them down the same ramp to slaughter as the so-called beef cattle. So anyone who puts real cheese on their pizza or drinks real dairy milk instead of this wonderful selection of vegan milks we now have in every supermarket, we are the ones doing that who are fueling, allowing the slaughterhouses to exist. Slaughterhouses will not exist if people feed other people vegan food, show other people vegan food, help them convert to vegan eating, and get away from this disgusting caveman barbaric practice of seeing animals as hamburger on the hoof or, or, or milk.
2: And by transferring to a vegan diet, people will be saving not only animals, but people as well.
1: No question. I mean, no question. And, and saving resources, water, not polluting the land. And North Carolina, which is just down the road from where I'm speaking now, I mean, the hog waste is sprayed out over the fields, and people can't sit out in their own backyards. And it, when there's a tornado or a hurricane all those swampy manure lagoons go into the waterways, kill the fish, the birds, and poison people downstream. I mean, this, what kind of system is this? We mustn't prop it up. We must really educate everyone we can, help them make the transition, introduce them to what they like to eat, but the vegan version. <laughs>
0: <laughs> totally agree with you on that. And we have a couple of... Um, the large dairy farms here. And and they were approved, I don't know, in the last six years, Democratic governor, and they're polluting the waters. It, yeah. It's just tragic. It's just tragic. I, you know, and there's no jobs. It's not like it brought jobs into the state. And I had to laugh. Yep. There was an environmental group that called our governor the conservationist of the year. And it was like I wrote them a, a letter just saying, well, I hate to differ with you, but if somebody's approving these <laughs> large scale dairy farms and polluting our land and our water and our air, no. That's not Well
1: you that. know, politics is, is politics is broken, it's all all business. There are very few politicians who will do what's right if they can do something that pleases a voting block and it's getting worse and worse. But, I mean, when you say conservation, that's always another term that fascinates me because trophy hunters are all conservationists. Oh, you're you're right. (laughs) You know, you it's conservation that you blow this animal away off the the and You go out after that poor lion who was the dentist shot and you follow him. And then you do it in the name of conservation and you think, I'm sorry, but could you define conservation for me, you small person? Yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, I know that Cory Booker in uh, the legislative session of 2019 introduced a bill called the Farm System Reform Act of 2019, and that was to ban large-scale factory farming by 2040. And it's just been reintroduced in the new session by Senators Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren. Your thoughts on that?
1: Well, you know, I think you can rarely go from A to Z. So chipping away, even if you're an abolitionist, is better than dreaming. Hope is going to get you so far. So you have to do as much as you can do to get you from A to B, from B to, and on on down the road. Then if you're towards the end of the alphabet, you're closer for the jump to Z. So if you know what I mean, you have to start knocking out the cruelties and the unsavory and the barbaric as you go. And so I think it's great that they've introduced this law. It tells us a thing or two that it will take 20 years if it passes, if it's not diluted, to knock out the absolute worst and biggest abusers. I mean, that is an indictment of our system right there and of our ethics. So, But it's something, and we should always back anything that gets us closer to the goal, I believe, because just saying, well, I'm not in favor of any of it doesn't really get us far. You can say it, but you have to work to move us closer to the goal. And I'll give you an example. Years ago, there was a bill in Congress that would have required that cattle sitting on feedlots, where they sit for many days would be given water because they were denied water. Three or four days, they would go without water and they've got enough to contend with and they would go that without any water. We sent that petition to all over the place And I got one petition back in the mail with no signatures, and it was from a vegan farm. And the person had written on it, I'm sorry, we can't sign this, because we don't believe the cattle should be there in the first place. (laughs) I thought, well, we don't believe the cattle should be there in the first place either, but they are, and they're not getting any water. So wouldn't it be better if you didn't believe they should be there in the first place, but at least you had made sure they had some water? Strange thinking.
0: I know that the last half of the book deals with a lot of um, issues, including animal testing, animals used, and entertainment uh, for food, obviously, and for clothing. But I wanted to ask you about something that's very popular in our neck of the woods, because we're in cowboy country, and that's rodeos.
1: Yeah, Well, rodeos, you know, I mean, like many things that shouldn't happen, they started when cowboys were bored. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have virtual reality. They didn't even have a football team. They were out in the middle of nowhere. They looked around and they saw some animals and they thought, let's harass them for fun. And so they tormented them and they came up with ways to make them buck and kick and to make themselves look strong. And it's primitive. It's a, it's a really old fashioned, horrible thing that should go away. And I believe that men who think that it makes them look strong or macho or something who swashbuckle around really need to examine what they think makes a man. I mean, to me, it's being decent. It's being respectful. It's being thoughtful. It's being protective. It's not being just a cheap bully. And rodeos, I think, if you look at them uh, just honestly, what are they? But ways in which you disrespect and really disavow any understanding of who animals are. They need to go the same way bullfight, which now are banned in 100 uh, counties in in Spain. They're dying out. Rodeos need to go, too. They're, They're a disgrace. I mean, how can you look big at an animal's expense? I mean, a bull may seem, oh gosh, they're, you know, they've a thousand pounds and they've got horns and I can tame them. That's such an old fashioned idea of domination of nature. Of course you can. You've got all sorts of things at your disposal. They've got ropes and guns and <laughs> spurs and who knows what. It's, and why would you? Why do you pick on somebody just to show that you could win And then to harm them. I mean, animals in the rodeo, as you know, they break legs, they strain muscles, they're in pain, they're not given painkillers, and most of them end up at the slaughterhouse afterwards anyway. We found that with bullfighting, same thing. They give laxatives to the animals to debilitate them. They put Vaseline in their eyes. They put thorns under the straps in the rodeo. Yeah, it's, it's pathetic.
0: Okay, I'm sure you do. You've been so gracious. I can't thank you enough. Thank you, thank, thank you.
1: Thank you both. Take care and good luck with your activism. Thank you. thank you, you too. You've been listening to a
0: KPOV Critical Conversation. To hear more engaging interviews on important topics, please visit kpov.org slash critical conversations.